This is Undisciplined, academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. Now let's get into it. Now, Matthew. Yes. I'm sure, you know, you've come across as a man in media the number of ways that women bodies are used to advertise products. Of course, yeah. Is, are there any that might stand out to you uh, that you could think of at the moment? The know. two that stick out to me, uh, you know, especially as we're recording here in the summer, bathing suits okay. <laughs> are something that, you know, Baywatch. <laughs> we're, we're very aware of how, you know, when you very first walk into Target, the first thing you see is all the new bathing suits, Oh, really? Right? Okay. <laughs> I'm not a Target shopper. <laughs> I need to go though. And the other thing that uh, you know obviously sticks out to me uh, is makeup for sure. Ah, uh, yeah. So those two things are you know the things that I think of when I think of like women and media, and we're talking about advertising and those sorts of things, and and body of, image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I guess it's no secret to people that women's bodies. It's constantly being used in advertising, and I'm sure in more recent time, men's bodies as well. I mean, now in the summer, I'm sure you've seen the phenomenon of the hoochie daddy shorts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that I men sure are getting catcalled by women, uh, by women wearing the little short shorts, uh-huh. and the the rules have reversed. Right, men working out at the gym, and you know wearing. Um, you know, tighter fitting clothing. So it's quite interesting. But, you know, all of these things, um, you know, looking at ads that talk about if your hair isn't beautiful, the rest hardly matters. You Mm. know, this is an ad for shampoo. And um, there's another ad that says, my boyfriend told me he loved me for my mind. I was never so insulted in life. (laughs) This was an ad for cigarettes. Mm. (laughs) And then there was one that said for deodorant that deodorant is made for women's extra feelings, Hmm. which is located in her armpits. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm reading this from Jean Kilborn um, and her research on um, women in bodies in advertising. Right. A woman in a diet ad talked about, I'll probably never be married now if I hadn't lost 49 pounds. Can you imagine the effect that might have? And this um, someone is shouting in the audience, the best advertisement for fat that I've ever seen. Right. Mm. Now, all of these things have gotten worse. Right. Um, You think that, you know, we're in 2022 and we're in this linear march to progress. Mm -hmm. But. Think about the effect that this might be having on children as increasingly more and more sexualized imaging through advertising and popular culture emerge where girls and little boys get this message from very early on that, you know, what kind of body you have to have, what it means to be hot, what it means to be sexy, what it means to be beautiful the kinds of um, impossibly thin standards. I'm not sure if you're on social media. Yeah. Um, some time ago, there was this long line of many women who had um, gone to the DR, I think, 
to do BBLs. Hmm. You know what a BBL is, man? I don't. A BBL is a Brazilian butt lift. Oh, Lord. Yes. And so when they're coming back, they can't even sit down on the butt in the plane. Oh my so gosh. <laughs> it's been a thing now on social media where people are, because I guess it's cheaper to do over yeah. there. Um, and they have to be positioned a certain way over the wheelchair. And so people immediately know that's what they went to do. Yeah. And so it's um, people are like, yeah, BBL culture. Like, what happened? Is it sparked by a certain show that in mm. California with mm-hmm. a couple of sisters? Is that what sparked that? But we know that these things happen. Women bodies are, you know, used in all of these things. They're used to sell from shampoo to chainsaw. They're oftentimes dismembered breasts, mm-hmm. buttocks, legs um, to, you know, transform into different things, to morph into different products, into cars, into shoes, yeah. into beer, you know. So that's that's gender, Right. When it comes, when you add race to that, it adds a whole different dimension. Um, have you ever heard the name Sarah Bartman? No. So Sarah Bartman, you may not know her face, but probably you've met her body or seen her body in popular images. Uh-huh. She's come to be known as the Venus Hottentot. Um, she was born in the late 18th century in the Cape, Eastern Cape in modern-day South Africa. Mm-hmm. And she would, uh, she would be brought to the UK by these essentially enslavers who took her there and used her in exhibits mm. in the circus and profited from her body being used as spectacle. Wow. Right? She had all of, you know, what people tend to associate with African and African diasporic women big buttocks and, you know, excess fat around hip and bottom area. And so that was the reasoning for her spectacle, Mm. right? You can find these kinds of description of African women in travel logs and diaries of Europeans visiting Africa from the 15th century onwards who are writing back in their diaries and people are, you know, absorbing these stories about what African imagery is. Right, it's building these of, stereotypes. Yes, this is the basis for the stereotypes that, you know, African women, you know, they suckle their children over their, mm. their shoulders and when they're in the fields, they look like they have six legs, mm. given the shapes of their breasts and, you know, all of these things. So um, Sarah Bartman has come to epitomize this in many ways, spending, you know, a lot of her adult life exhibited as a freak in attractions in Lan- in London and Paris where she died and would be, you know, displayed for a long time. And in fact, you know, this kind of lends itself to the kind of hypersexualized fetishized ideas that we have about the black body that we see even in rap videos right. and you know how how that is used to be justified for how black women are too sexual or they grow up or are perceived as older too too quickly right and you know those kinds of things so black women's bodies i think you know occupy that kind of a um, space because It wasn't until in recent times, you know, that her body was, after she died in Europe, 
her body was put as a medical specimen, mm. her vagina and things cut out mm. and put on display. And it was not until in recent times that she was repatriated to South Africa to be properly buried. Right. Right. So um, these ideas about primitivity and ideas about African women and the body image of certain groups of people that creates the stereotypes that inform the way that people treat them, um, you know, is epitomized through Sarah Bartman. Now, I am pleased that we're having this discussion today with Dr. Angela Denise Mensa, who is a communication professor. Um, she is a published author and faculty currently at the University of Arkansas. She is presented at numerous national and international conferences. Thank you so much, Dr. Mensa, for coming to On Discipline. Thank you for having me, Dr. Banton. I'm happy to be here. So I'm going to start off, Dr. Mensa, by asking you to define for us what is, how do you define body image? I would think body image is basically how you feel about yourself, how you feel in your own skin, but it's also how you think others perceive you um, and, and your body. And so is body image related to our well-being? How does it, you know, correlate with those kinds of things? It absolutely is. So it's related to how you feel about yourself and your self-esteem. And then whether you have self-compassion for yourself and whether you are taking care of yourself, that contributes to your well-being. So they're all basically interrelated. And so you can pretty much tell if someone has a negative body image, if they are always, do I look too fat? How do I look? And they're very critical of themselves and their bodies and their weight. Um, they think they're too fat or too thin. So those are the types of things that you want to look out for and realize that we all come in different shapes and sizes and we can be healthy in those different shapes and sizes. And if one feels that they're unhealthy, then that's something that, you know, they should talk to their doctor with so they can get on a plan to be more healthy. And you can do that, you know, over time, basically. So how is one body image developed? Well, think about when you were a child. So if you have a child, you realize that babies love themselves. They look at themselves, they, you know, kiss themselves in the mirror, they like bite their toes, they're just, they love themselves. Um, it's not until they start interacting with other people that are in their family or in school or looking at media images, that's when they start to develop a, a body image that is either negative or positive. And so our first teachers are our parents. So if your parent has a negative body image, then obviously that can be passed on to the child. And then even if the parents have a, a healthy body image, once they start interacting with the world and interacting with at school and with peers, I mean, children in kindergarten can start saying, oh, I want to lose weight. I don't want to get fat. I don't want to eat that. Things of that nature. So it develops as we start interacting with the world and media. We're so saturated with all of these media images that it's difficult to have a healthy body image. Uh, if you look at media and you're consuming media images all the time and media images are images that are basically, you know, whitewashed. And when I say whitewashed, I say 
when you see a lot of African Americans in the media, they are basically very bright skinned a lot of the time. And so children that are African Americans oftentimes feel, and African, oftentimes feel like they want to have lighter skin. So they'll use bleaching products. And also the idealized thin person is in the media. And so that person then wants to look very thin, even though those images are touched up and and airbrushed and very unrealistic standards for many people, especially the ones that are models. So the more we interact and see those types of things, the more we'll have a negative self-image. Do you remember a time when you first thought about your body image. I, I know that you oh. you had a career in, uh, you know, your undergrad degree is in broadcast uh, TV. You know, where was a time where you kind of first began to think about your personal body image? I actually remember very specifically when um, I was about uh, maybe 10, I was watching television and I grew up in a small town, went to a primarily white school and there was a news cast on and there was a, a, a white gentleman and he was talking about how black people pissed tears and and what? how we had tails. We had yeah, we had tails. And and so I literally went to the mirror and I looked to see if I had a tail what? and I did not have a tail. And I cried. And I tasted my tears and my tears were salty. And I remember thinking, so this is what pee tastes like. So that, that is when I literally started thinking about my own body image. I remember that very specifically. What about you, Matt? Um, I grew up as a really scrawny kid, but I was always really, really short. I think for me, a moment when I first thought about my body image was I played basketball in middle school and I always had really small feet. And I still, to this day, like I I wear a size like six and a half or seven, which is pretty small for men. And when I was in seventh grade, I wore a size four and a half and I had to buy my shoes with the women's basketball team, with the girls' middle school team. We got the same shoes. So it was the days of, like, the patent leather Adidas shoes. Do you remember those? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the boys and the girls got the literal exact same shoes, but I had to buy my shoes with the girls' team because they didn't make them in my size for men's shoes. Mm-hmm. And that was really a, a moment for me where I thought, like, I don't have men's feet. I have women's feet. Or I have, like, children's feet. Right. And that was... Uh, that was like seventh grade that it really stuck out to me in a moment like that. So I'm um, like, did the other kids know or did? Oh it, yeah, they, yeah, did, did I was ridiculed. Oh, oh wow. absolutely, yeah. Like, I, like, and and it's funny because if you had put those shoes up to anyone else's, you literally couldn't tell, tell the a difference. difference. Yeah, but everyone knew that I had to buy my shoes with the girls' team. Oh wow! And you know, I was ridiculed for that. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. I think for me, I was I was very skinny growing up and being dark skinned too in Jamaica as Jamaica is a classist society where, um, you know, colorism plays a significant um, issue where class is concerned. And I remember this girl, you know, she called me black in a pejorative way, not mm. in the kind of way that I now, you know, be more mature, celebrate. 
Um, and I told my grandma, and she held my hand, and she walked me down to her house mm. and yelled at her. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, so it was, you know, very weird because that was the thing that people said to me the most, that you're so, in Jamaica, skinny means, um, the word for skinny is maga. Mm. You're maga your mother, mm. you know, so you always heard that, which kind of, you know, segue into the next question about the role of the family and the community in creating body image. I think the community plays a big role, especially the way I grew up. I grew up in church. So a lot of church communities, they believe that, you know, a woman should be covered up and A woman should be very submissive and docile. And for some reason, a part of that means being very thin in the circles that I grew up in. So the women that I grew up with were always dieting. Um, I remember my mother, she would eat like a grapefruit in the morning. That was her grapefruit diet. And so she was very tall and very thin. And so I was always looked upon as, you know, well, she's just, you know, she's just thick, she's solid. And so I was always seen kind of as a fat person in my family, where, you know, everyone else uh, dieted very successfully, but they were also very tall women. So that played a part in it. And then in the community and in church, you would be like, well, you have to not eat because then it was a part of fasting and, and praying was something that, you know, you needed to do regularly. Also in school, We would have to, you know, be weighed in school and do fitness testing and things of that nature. So that's when you start even comparing yourself to, you know, your classmates. And then you go to the doctor and the doctor tells you that, you know, your BMI is too um, high and that you need to lose weight. And these things start very early on in, in your life. And so those then contribute to a lot of, you know, self-hate, self-loathing, and unhealthy self-esteem and body image. So the community plays a huge role in our body image and our self-esteem, unfortunately. You mentioned um, the media earlier, and you touched on briefly about the messages that we consume via media. In your research, I know there are several movies to the point where you know, there's stereotypes about African-American women in media from the mammy character, right? From the, the, if you think about the help, people like Viola Davis in The Help or, you know, Aunt Jemima character, you know, in, in Gone with the Wind, that character in the movie and the, the kind of, it's kind of, the kind of desexualized image of African-American women that are designed for subservience and their body image is kind of structured along those lines, almost for nurturing, wet nursing, that kind of a thing. Then you have the sapphire character that kind of, I think, makes its way in black exploitation films. Right. Mm-hmm. Or the, the Jezebel. The Jezebel character. Mm-hmm. And so we're very limited in the types of roles that we're cast in. And, and if you think about, you know, um, even Halle Berry, she won her um, award, mm-hmm. when she, her Oscar, when she um, played in the Monsters Ball. And so basically she was a she was a Jezebel. Mm-hmm. I mean, she didn't have a 
a role that really characterized a woman with a lot of character in it. So, and then even Denzel Washington and and Training Day, he got his Oscar there. And I just thought that was also interesting because um, when he played Malcolm X, I felt like that role definitely deserved it, but he had to be a, a thug that was a police officer in order to win his award. And so a lot of times the roles that we get and the roles that we play in are roles that reinscribe the old stereotypes of, you know, the buck or the coon or, you know, the Jezebel and, and all of those particular characters that they have in Hollywood. And it's part of it is because that's what people can relate to and that's what people understand and that's what they want to watch. And that's entertaining them. So the people that we actually are is probably boring (laughs) to them. So I think that will continue to happen. And a lot of times it happens at the hands of Black producers and directors as well. So and that's because they want to make money. um, And that's pretty much the bottom line. And in order to do that, they have to play into those stereotypes in order to get people to come to watch the movie. Do you think that that's because they're targeting that towards a white audience, that they're they're wanting them to fit into a specific stereotype or mold so that white people can see them without the nuance? Yeah. If you're not exposed to all of those kind of nuanced ideas about blackness, then your brain, I guess, you know, make those kinds of categorizations for you to easily understand it. So I imagine, Dr. Mensa, is this part of the calculation where you have to position, you know, so many movies about the jock and Mm -hmm. the jock has to look like this? (laughs) Actually, um, I would suggest that all of us, including African-Americans, basically we've been brainwashed. (laughs) And so, you know, we want to think about the process of decolonizing our minds. And all of us have been taught through media and even in schools that, you know, Black people are a certain way. And so all of us are actually attracted to these movies and all of us buy and go and see them. So I don't, I don't think it's just the white audience. I believe that all of us are kind of victims of white supremacy. I mean, that's the type of society that we we live in. And that's the narrative that, you know, we have to understand that from kindergarten on up, that this is what we are taught in society. And we don't really understand those structures and systems of power and domination. And bell hooks would always say it's the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy to help Mm -hmm. us understand the forces that we have to deal with as black people but also white people have to deal with those as well because i mean growing up in a in a very like white neighborhood i wouldn't say that my friends were all racist i would say some of them were but for the most part a lot of them were not And it wasn't until we got to middle school that our parents realized, okay, they might like each other. Cut it out. No, this cannot happen. Hmm. So then, so as long as we were little and we were playing together and we were, you know, we went to school together and 
some church together, that everything was okay. But as soon as we were of dating age, that's when both parents were saying, no, this cannot happen. So, uh, you know, again, that's the society that we live in. And that system of power and domination can help not only black students, but also white students understand this is what you were taught. And either you can live within that or you can resist it. And so really all of my graduate work is a part of me trying to, you know, resist that and trying to decolonize, you know, my own mind. And it's really interesting today, this whole thing with our hair and how people are now trying to embrace black hair. And it's, it's a very interesting experience for me, particularly because I come from a family where we have all these different hair textures. And so my hair texture wasn't acceptable in my own family. Hmm. And so I, you know, I've had this crazy, you know, relationship with my hair my whole life. And so typically I'm wearing something on my hair. It's usually some type of wig or a weave or something is always on my hair because I am actually uncomfortable with my hair in spaces outside of my house because of my experience in my family and not just in my family, but then, you know, with, with the world. And so with the world now saying, Hey, you, you can embrace your hair. It's a very strange kind of experience for me because I, I, I don't buy it yet. <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I, I think we have to always just understand this is, this is America. We just live under this particular system of power and domination. And we have to understand that. And we always have to pretty much wrestle with that. And that's how we can then end up being oppressors and being the oppressed um, at the same time. So we can't escape this system. I know people would like to, but this is America. Mike check one two. This is Ryan Versi, KUAF's underwriting director. KUAF now produces eight podcasts with important topics ranging from mental health to cryptocurrency, with more than twenty thousand downloads a month. You can reach these listeners with information about your business or organization by sponsoring a podcast like Ozarks at Large, Resilient Black Women, Undisciplined, or others. To learn more about sponsoring a podcast on KUAF, email me at ryan at kuaf.com. That's R Y A N at KUAF.com. Let's talk about hair for just a moment. I come from a long line of balding men. (laughs) I, you know, I am lucky enough to have apparently inherited my father's genes as opposed to my mother's genes because I have three older brothers and all of them by their early thirties were receding hairlines and, and now, you know, wear their hair basically bald. Why do you think hair across, you know, we can talk specifically within, you know, African-American culture, but why is hair such an important element of how we associate ourselves and how we identify ourselves, do you think? I do remember, you know, from my grandmother saying that your hair is your crown and glory, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Why hair is so important, (laughs) I don't particularly understand why it's that important, but when we talk about like alopecia and the thing with data Smith and everything that's going on. Well, you could contribute that to, Hey, we have to shave. We have to have the, 
Brazilian bikini wax. Mm. We have to we have to pluck everything. But the only hair that's acceptable is the the kind of hair that's on your head and maybe your eyebrows. But mm-hmm. we pluck those too. So <laughs> I just think that hair is the one acceptable form of hair that we can have on our bodies. So we put a lot of stock and weight into it. And also we have to think about for, you know, white Americans, Caucasian Americans, their hair is long and straight. And so that's why we straighten our hair to make our hair long and straight and add extensions. And, and so it's kind of that whole social comparison thing where we want to look a certain way and we want to fit in and, you know, thinking about the shampoo commercials uh, or you always see people with, you know, long, beautiful blonde hair. And I think advertising pretty much made our experience with hair as it is today. And so it's like advertising hair, buy this product, make your hair long and beautiful and strong, buy that product and you can get your hair straightened or, or it can be curly Um, But you definitely want to have good hair and not bad hair. So I, I have bad hair, according to our culture. I think part of it, too, is that the kind of how it is viewed um, culturally and spiritually, you know, from Africa to the diaspora in terms of what, you know, kind of styles your hair can be doing to represent certain kinds of, you know, maybe ceremonies or things like that. So that's African. But I think maybe for men as well, given that hair, whether you have it or not, receding hairlines is a reflection of maybe your virility. Sure. You know? I'm, I'm sure that's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> how old you are, how young you are. Because I remember, like, I, I think for me, growing up, balding head represented you're getting old Mm -hmm. right and now i know people in their 20s who are balded and i'm like what happened what changed but maybe it was just my lack of understanding at the time but i remember growing up and distinctly you associate like the pastor in your church he was old he had a bald head you know and and elder in the community was old and you know all of these things and so I think that's men's concern. You know, men are, I think, as a demographic, if the, all the advertisements around men's hair these days, Rogaine. Just for men. Just for men. Making, making it easy to dye your hair. Oh, my goodness. Oh my. Um, you know, they, men are trying everything. And especially for black men where you have to get that very nice looking mm-hmm. lineup mm-hmm. that looks razor sharp. Really clean. Look yeah. really clean that you... You don't have to, what's the black dye used again? Beijing. Mm. Beijing, where they spray it that it looks oh, like sure. you have a really fill in, oh. fill in the hero so that you don't have to like come out looking like um, LeBron James. <laughs> Stop it. You had to slip that in there, Matt. You don't talk about my LeBron. <laughs> but, but very important, Absolutely. right? I mean, mm-hmm. LeBron has all the millions in the world. He's a billionaire now, right? Yeah. And still, that's a concern. He gets clowned on the internet all the time about him oh not God. having hair or having balding hair spots. or balding spot yeah. or whatnot. And he is, he's an athlete that's in phenomenal shape, mm-hmm. but the hair is so significant. That might help us transition to thinking about 
So we talked about men and women, you know, we talked a little about children and teens, how body image, you know, how what they consume from culture, how that might affect them. And we talked about, you know, race and gender and body image in America. What is the connection between body image and eating disorders? Well, the drive for thinness and wanting to be thin and wanting to, you know, look a certain way, the body dissatisfaction then can lead to eating disorders. It doesn't always lead to eating disorders, but it can lead to eating disorders. A lot of people maybe start eating disorders in the sporting field because, for example, if you need to maintain a certain weight, Sometimes, you know, people will eat in order to get that weight or they'll starve themselves in order to be that weight. So you're either stuffing or you're starving yourself. And then when you do that, sometimes you can end up being on a cycle of binge eating and then purging by exercising all all of your calories off or actually throwing up to get food out of your system And then it it becomes a a relentless cycle and you can fall into, you know, disordered eating behaviors. There are a number of disordered eating behaviors or diseases that we know of. I think beyond anorexia, there's bulimia, body dysmorphia. Are there others that people need to be aware of? Well, a a lot of people don't talk a lot about restricting um, eating disordered behaviors. The interesting thing about restricting eating disordered behaviors is that a lot of people that are fat actually restrict food a lot. And so they'll restrict food for so long and then they'll binge because they're basically starving themselves. And then they'll get on that particular cycle and, and not just, you know, large people, but people in smaller bodies do the same thing. So that's one that I think people really should watch out for. And in the religious community, sometimes people say, well, you have to fast, you have to fast. Fast and pray. Yeah, fast and pray. It'll become a kind of a way to indulge in those behaviors and not really give yourself the nutrition that your body needs. And one of the things that I've learned, because you know what I did last year, Matthew? Hmm. I was a vegan until like November. Really? Last year, yes. You were a vegan? I was. I was. Oh. I, I go on, uh, you're talking about me because I go on these crazy diets <laughs> all the time. Like, you know, <laughs> my friends and my husband knows that um, he's like, I don't know what to buy because you're always on a diet, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. And okay. I, last summer i went on i had like two cleanse two Mm. cleanses and i was working out sometimes twice per day Mm. at a trainer and i go to the class at u of a and i think i ruined myself Mm. (laughs) i ruined myself because what i subsequently learned is that if you're under eating it Mm -hmm. it messes with your hormones Mm. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And if you're working out too hard, it also messes with your hormones. When I was a college athlete, um, you know, having to do two-a-days, when yeah. I was playing soccer and tennis at, you know, Grambling, 
you know, that would happen sometimes and, you know, you're working out too hard and sometimes, you know, it delays your period. Yeah, it affects your cycle. Yeah, it affects your cycle. So, so yeah, so that's a thing from under eating or not getting the proper nutrition or getting the, the food that your body needs. It can really affect you. And so for, you know, people, we're in this culture now of meal prep and at least maybe that seems to be geared towards more healthy food, but it it seems to be geared towards body image as well because people are so concerned about what foods um, they're concerned. So it's like a thin line between are you enjoying yourself or are you just concerned about whatever body you have? Yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a joke that my grandpa would always use, and he would say, when people would talk about diets, he would say, well, I'm on the seafood diet. <laughs> I see food and I eat it. <laughs> Can we talk about um, surgery, cosmetic surgery and body image a little bit? Yes, cosmetic surgery is interesting because on the one hand, you'll get people that are having surgery to do, for example, an eye lift or something. If if they're Asian and they want their eyes, you know, to look a certain way, look more American. But that's a that's a racism. That's a white supremacy issue because they want European eyes. Yeah, I remember remember um, the Asian woman on the talk talking about her surgery. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm, saying mm-hmm. that she was told she had to get it if she wanted to move up in media. And and then we we have the, you know, picking apart, you know, our bodies and, and zeroing in on a certain one. So there are a lot of the lip surgeries and lip fillers and and then, of course, the boob jobs and, you know, the butt lifts, as you mentioned. But also when we think of cosmetic surgery, you have to understand that bariatric surgery is technically a cosmetic surgery to get your body to look a certain way. And it is a very unhealthy surgery for our bodies in general. And people still, they still get them. So bariatric surgery, I consider is also a cosmetic surgery. Um, And you don't have to be six or seven or 800 pounds in order to get bariatric surgery. So I've been recommended to get bariatric surgery. So I think, you know, it's it's very interesting how, you know, doctors are really getting people to do these surgeries when, in fact, we know that it is unhealthy to lose 100 pounds in a month or however, you know, many pounds you'll lose in a, a, a very quick amount of time. And then oftentimes they don't show that people end up gaining the weight back and they don't really show that they'll just show hey look at this it's the same thing because your body forgets after five years it you know you can go back to the exact same behaviors instead of looking at what's underlying any type of um, health issue or or weight issue if there is an issue at all if you are a healthy person and you happen to be a large person then you shouldn't be told that you need bariatric surgery. I'm thinking about all the shows on TV, My 600-Pound Life, yeah. Yeah. Um, Botched, Revenge Body that Khloe Kardashian was on, Biggest Loser, yeah, you know, so many of these shows. And I'm thinking about, you know, people, artists like Lizzo, right, 
mm-hmm. who were behind um, ideas of body positivity, right? And she got into, it seems like, a little um, social media spat with Jillian Michaels, who is a trainer, to say that people are glorifying unhealthy bodies, like Lizzo's body is unhealthy, and therefore she should not be celebrating her body as body positivity or encouraging other people to be as big as she is because there is an objectively unhealthy body and there's healthy bodies. So what are your thoughts about that? Well, body positivity basically still reinscribes the ideal thin. So body positivity is saying, hey, we're going to uphold these certain bodies and not other bodies. And just because Lizzo is seen as a large body, it does not mean that she is unhealthy. Unhealthy could mean that do you have high blood pressure? Do you have high cholesterol? Do you have ABCD? Um, You obviously have diabetes. So every time, you know, you go to the doctor's office and they're, they're looking for these things because you have a large body, when you don't, they're typically surprised. And so I think, with Lizzo, people just assume certain things because of her size. And she basically, I wouldn't say that she is necessarily a body positive activist. I think that she is an entertainer and she's basically doing her job and she entertains well. But I don't think Lillian Michaels or whatever her name is, I don't, I, I think that she is a person that is very weight conscious and very ideal thin focused instead of being kind of um, weight neutral and weight neutral is basically saying, Hey, everyone lives in certain bodies. And as long as they're healthy and they're doing things that are, are healthy for their bodies, then they're okay. So that's the kind of the root of like oppression in America, trying to get everyone to fit a certain mold of an ideal body. And it is a ridiculously unrealistic notion that we all should look and be the same. It just, it doesn't, it's not even logical. It makes no sense at all. So I I really feel sorry for, for Lizzo and a lot of things that she's gone through just because she has a certain size, you know, it's, it's crazy. I'd like to thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mensa, for speaking to us about body image. Uh, we know you are having these kinds of discussions um, coming on board at the University of Arkansas in the fall semester. So I encourage students and listen audiences in the community to check out Dr. Mensa's class in um, communications and African African American studies. So thank you so much, Dr. Mensa, for coming to Undisciplined. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Undisciplined is hosted by Dr. Karee Banton and produced by me, Matthew Moore. Our show's associate producer is Rachel Bernstein. Thanks so much for listening.